Welcome to DePaul Download. I'm your host, Linda Blakely, Vice President of University Marketing and Communications. Today's guest is a well-known advocate against the death penalty. For five decades, Sister Helen Prejean has led a national dialogue on capital punishment. She is the author of three books. One of them, Dead Man Walking, an eyewitness account of the death penalty in the U.S., inspired a play, an opera, and an Academy Award-winning movie. If that wasn't enough, she also helped shape the Catholic Church's position on the topic, urging John Paul II and Pope Francis to establish the Church's opposition to capital punishment under any circumstance. In 2011, Sister Helen generously donated her personal archives to DePaul so that our community could continue to learn from her work. Normally, she travels each spring from her home in Louisiana to DePaul's campus to meet with the university community. However, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, this year's visit was canceled. With such an incredible body of work, DePaul Download still wanted to catch up with the advocate, even if it meant talking to her from afar. Sister Helen, I am so glad to have this opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you, Linda. Good to be here. For those who might not be familiar with your journey, can you share a brief summary of how you joined the fight against capital punishment? Yes. Uh, as I I gave the account of waking up to social justice in the book I just wrote, River of Fire. And when I woke up to the gospel of social justice, I moved into a poor African-American neighborhood and began to really get an education about the other American, how things worked. And while I was working there one day, a friend from the Louisiana Prison Coalition office asked me if I'd like to write a death row inmate. And so I said, yeah, I could do that. I was an English major. I thought I could write letters, never dreaming how it was going to change the trajectory of my life. Because two and a half years after I started writing the letters to Patrick Sonier on death row in Louisiana, I witnessed his execution by electrocution and came out of that execution chamber and knew that I couldn't walk away from it that I had been a witness where few other people have been, and that I must tell the story and that I must devote my life to helping to wake up Americans and to wake up my own church about the death penalty and that we need to abolish it. And so I've been doing it ever since. That was back in 1984 when Pat was executed. If you had a moment to explain why you believe the death penalty should be made illegal, what would you say? I believe it should be made illegal because it is immoral. The reason it is immoral, and this was the heart of my conversation with Pope John Paul II, is that it entails taking a conscious, imaginative human person and and putting them in a small cell for many, many years and then strapping them down and rendering them defenseless and killing them. It's the practice of torture, because conscious, imaginative human beings anticipate dying, picture dying, die in their uh, minds a thousand times before they die. The other part we really have to look at is imagine turning over power to government officials in the United States 
that they will have the wisdom to be able to determine who should be killed, for what crimes they should be killed, how to distinguish what they call the worst of the worst murderers from all the other murders that happen in the United States, and that we would be able to set up a court system in which we would absolutely be sure that we only executed guilty people. Thus far, 168 wrongfully convicted people have been exonerated off a death row because with mistakes were made, prosecutorial misconduct, hiding evidence, having lying uh, witnesses up there against the defendant. And we're beginning to see how terribly flawed it is. And the reason it is flawed and will always be flawed is because it's up to the discretion of individual prosecutors whether to seek death or not. And politics then plays 95% of the role because prosecutors run for office and want to be reelected. And if they are in a part of the country, which in the beginning was almost every part of the country, now it's mostly just a few states, decide they want to go for the death penalty, they determine whether or not a human being is going to live or die. It was impossible that we would set up a system like this to think that we could play the God role and decide that some of our fellow human beings could be killed. It also gives juries an inscrutable task because here's a person who's done a terrible crime, granted, you're horrified at what they've done, but then you are asked to go behind closed doors and decide if they should live or die. And the stories now, we've been doing this over 30 years, are coming out about jurors making those decisions. And then later, the agony of having participated in a decision to kill a fellow human being, their regrets, their guilt, as well as all the stories we're getting now, the guards and the wardens, and the people who directly participate in executions. The deepest moral question for us Christians is that we are called to follow Jesus. If it couldn't be more opposite to the gospel of Jesus, that if you kill, it's okay that we kill you. We will match your actions. We will imitate your actions and call it justice. I mean, Jesus has taught us to forgive. Jesus taught us mercy. Jesus taught us to love, even to give our own life for others, much less to make decisions that we could kill our fellow human beings. It's the opposite of what Jesus stands for. So how then do you handle the delicate balance between supporting the convicted and supporting the victim and their family and friends? To support victims' families who have experienced a violent death in very positive ways is to help them first to have groups of support who can pray with them walk with them and accompany them through healing. The states that execute also have a responsibility because they're charged with the welfare of their citizens. And so when violence happens through weakness in society where people are killed, they need to have every state ought to have a victim assistance uh, program and help that's vigorous. Uh, Often families, People lose their job. They can't focus after someone's been killed. Uh, there's all kind of need for counseling of families. I was talking to one uh, whose sister had been killed, 
and her parents then were so consumed with the grief and the wanting to get justice for her sister that she fell through the cracks. She said, they always remember my sister's uh, the date she was killed, but they forgot my birthday. So victims' families need real help. And and then you need to expose the the absolute hypocrisy of the state claiming that the way they can help these victims' families to heal, very few of these families, by the way, almost never an African-American or per, a family of color get this. Uh, in fact, that's one of the things about the death penalty is so racist. Overwhelmingly, people who get the death penalty, it's because they killed white people. But then they say to them, now you wait, and when it's time for the justice to be done, which means an execution, you're going to get to sit on the front row and watch. And that is what we're going to do for you, to heal you. And now all the stories we have of victim families that are coming out that wanted this and waited for this justice and what it did for them. As Bud Welch uh, said, he's a wonderful friend. His daughter, Julie, was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing, and he had his own journey to make, of course, of about Tim McVeigh and those that, that killed her in that bombing. And, uh, and he just said, look, even if I had gone with the hundred and other, 168 other people, families that were represented in that killing, and I had watched Tim McVeigh be executed, when I would come home, the chair that my daughter, Julie Marie, sat in would still be empty. And his, he recognized that his spiritual journey was to deal with her loss, and he had to deal with not letting the anger and vengeance take over his life so that he'd lose his life as well. Through years of work by you and others, Pope Francis changed Catholic teaching to fully reject the death penalty in 2018. Can you talk about how you helped make this change possible and what that moment meant for you? Sure. I mean, I want to situate myself right away in the context of community. When change happens like this, it's because it happens through community. I'm part of it. But it just happened that I did get to play some role in helping the church to end the death penalty. And the way it happened was in my second book, The Death of Innocence, I talk about two innocent people that I accompanied to execution. And one was Joseph Odell in Virginia. And so I got involved with this case and Italy got involved in trying to help him. The Italian parliament was sending people over. They were faxing letters to the governor of Virginia not to kill Joseph. He had an abysmal trial, the evidence. You know, it was just terrible what had happened to him, and here he was innocent. So because Italy got so involved with the case of Joseph Adele, Pope John Paul, of course, had heard about it too. And I had a chance then, because of Joe's case, to write a, a letter directly to Pope John Paul. And here's the heart of the discussion and the moral dilemma and issue of the death penalty for Catholics. The traditional teaching had always said that the purpose of capital punishment was to defend society. And when you look back in the days of Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, where he said it's, we must, you know, 
terminate the life of violent criminals to protect society. It was always about defense. It was not this recent thing of, oh, their crime is so terrible that we have decided that they deserve to die. And, and so anyway, so I got to write this letter to Pope John Paul II, and I said, Your Holiness, does the Catholic Church only uphold the dignity of innocent life? I meet so many Catholics who say they're pro-life, but then they draw a line in the sand when it comes to death penalty, because they say, but they're guilty. They deserve to die for what they did. And Your Holiness, when I'm walking with a man, execution and he's shackled hand and foot he's surrounded by six guards and we're about to walk 40 yards to the room where they're going to kill him and he turns to me and he says sister please pray God holds up my legs while I make this walk and I said to the Holy Father I said where is the dignity in making a human being completely defenseless and killing them when we have prisons to protect society, we can defend society. And it's the, in the essence or the pivotal point, moral point, was you could recognize that you cannot call this defending society. And it's the practice of torture to take a human being who's imaginative and alive and strapping them down and making them defenseless and killing them. So that was in 1997, that's when the year Joseph Odell was executed and his body was sent to Italy and they buried him there, the Italian people, uh, saying we will not let him be buried in Virginia soil. And, uh, and so that was, 90, that was in 97. Then in 1999, when Pope John Paul came to America, twice before he had come, and whenever he spoke of moral issues, of pro-life issues, he had never mentioned the death penalty. And then in 99, in St. Louis, for the first time, he put the death penalty in with the other pro-life issues. And in a public address in St. Louis, he said, no to abortion, no to euthanasia, no to physician-assisted suicide, and no to the death penalty, which is cruel and unnecessary. And then he added, even those among us who have done terrible crimes have a dignity that must not be taken from them. And he, that was a real turning point in the consciousness of everybody, in the dialogue. In other words, no matter how terrible a crime someone has done, they have an inherent dignity that they do not deserve to be tortured and killed when they're rendered defenseless. That's the key thing in it. And uh, so after Pope John Paul said that 99, we, we could begin to see the trends in the other directions. And what's so hopeful about it is when they're doing these national polls, because for a while the Catholics were above the rest. I mean, people that went to church, all the church goers, there was a terrible poll, terrible poll in the, in the mid-80s that it just showed the more people went to church, the more they supported the death penalty. And so then after Pope John Paul does this and the shift happens, then you begin to see when they'd ask people their reason for opposing the death penalty, Catholics started coming out stronger and stronger that it's against the dignity of the human person. And now Catholics, we're more or less with churches in the forefront 
uh, of abolishing the death penalty. Then after the Pope was strong, then the bishops got stronger. And finally, we reached the point with Pope Francis on August 2nd, 2018, changing the catechism to say that under no circumstances can we ever allow the state to kill. Up to that point, all the bishop statements, all, every time you heard dialogue on the death penalty from the Catholic point of view, they would always uphold the right of the state to take life. And as long as you're going to give governments a right to take life, then you put them in charge of who dies, what the criteria is, what the system is for killing them. And as Amnesty International has amply documented, whenever you give governments that power, inevitably, they go after the poor, they go after those that are prejudiced against in the society, and those that can't defend themselves. So over the five decades of work advocating for the abolition of the death penalty, what are some of the most surprising things you've learned about the criminal justice system and the capital punishment process? First of all, how arbitrary and capricious the selection of people to die is because it's up to individual prosecutors. So you can have county by county, a prosecutor and a DA that goes for the death penalty. Every chance they get and right next door is somebody who never goes for the death penalty because it's up to individuals to make that decision. If a prosecutor or a DA does not make a decision to go for the death penalty, there will be no death penalty. That's one of the things that's really clear. And now we can see that there are just a few pockets in the United States where DAs are going after the death penalty. We can really see the trend that executions are down, death sentences are down, and the death penalty is not being sought. That was the first thing I learned. Second, I learned why poor people are the only ones on death row. And I learned that that happens because they, they can't hire a really good crackerjack lawyer who's going to really fight for their constitutional rights all through the trial, go get the forensic evidence, uh, do pretrial motions, and really resist the death penalty the DA is seeking. They're all poor. And one of the big shocks and surprises that happened in Pat Sonier's case, he was the first, and it's been present in every other case, because they didn't have sharp lawyers who were willing and put in the work to file with the judge a formal objection when the constitutional rights were not upheld at trial. For example, Dobie Gillis Williams, who's the first story in Death of Innocence, a black man, an African-American man in this little town of Manning, Louisiana, a white woman had been killed in a bathroom. And they did this, spread out this net and just pulled in a bunch of young black men because supposedly the husband had said, they only had his word, the husband had said that his wife, right as she was dying, saying, a black man, kill me. So they pull in Doby. They have him down in the cellar of the police station. He got him to confess, or supposedly they said. And, and, the, and the lawyer, his defense lawyer, let an all-white jury be sat and did not raise a formal objection. So what that meant was that any appeals court would not look at 
prejudice in the jury because the lawyer hadn't filed a formal complaint, objection to it. And so no appeals court then could look at Dobie's constitutional right to a jury of his peers. And he just went down the wash and he was executed. So I learned what it means not to have a good lawyer. And I see it as comparable to you have a serious brain tumor and you can't get to a good doctor because you don't have the money to get good health care. You don't have good health. I think they're comparable. And the other thing I found was how the politicians, their ace in the hole, the, the way they justified themselves the most in seeking the death penalty was they're going to do it for the victim's family. The victim's family. They're going to do it for the victim's family. And I've been at death penalty trials where I heard prosecutors do their closing arguments and saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, don't feel sorry for this defendant. Look what this defendant did. And look over at that family. They're never going to see their daughter graduate from college. They're never going to see their grandchildren. And do justice for that family. And what justice means coming out of that prosecutor's mouth is only death will do. They suffered a loss by death, so therefore you got to vote to kill him. And then the jurors get thrown into their own anguish on that. So the politics... A Miller Farmer, a champion lawyer who was one of my great teachers, took Pat Sonier's case in, in the very beginning, said the death penalty is 95% about politics, 5% about criminal justice, because politicians got elected to office by talking tough on crime, and they would attack their opponents against the death penalty as weak. And if you notice, this is the first presidential campaign where we actually have candidates for president who say they are totally against the death penalty. We have never had that before. And the way I see the Holy Spirit moving in us and moving in us as a people is some people get in close to a situation. They begin to witness the horrors of it. They come out, they share with their fellow human beings, hey, look at this. I mean, it's the way we change slavery. It's the way women got the vote. We get in there, we see the suffering, we see, oh, this is wrong, and we grow together. And I see the Holy Spirit is flapping her wings over us, over the waters of chaos where these kind of things go on, and gradually the people wake up. And if I can say my great discovery in going from city to city across this nation has been the goodness of the American people. Most people bought into the death penalty because they were made to be so afraid of these criminals, because these criminals, they're innate killers. The only thing we can do is execute them. And they were made to be afraid, and, and, and then their distance from the process. The whole reason for Dead Man Walking, for writing the book, was to bring people close. There's a saying from liberation theology in Latin America, what the eye does not see, the heart cannot feel. And so what I do when I go and talk with audiences is just to wake up people and, and say, look, here's what I know you've heard about why we got to do the death penalty and just tick them off, bump, 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 to, you know, to defend society because these people, whenever we can't put them in prison, they'll kill guards, they are innate killers and all that. And then I take them through story of how I got involved and was learning along the way, all along the way. And then I take them through that execution. And in my, my book, River of Fire, in the preface, 
I talk about that as the fire of the book was the witnessing of the electrocution of Patrick Sonier. And it goes like this. They killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act. No religious leaders protested the killing that night, but I was there. I saw it with my own eyes, and what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And now here's an account of how I came to be in the killing chamber that night and the spiritual currents that brought me there. I have one more question for you, if I may. In 2011, you chose to donate your personal papers to DePaul. What made you choose DePaul University, and what do you want DePaul to learn or know about your lifelong work? Well, what I want to share with DePaul and the people there and everyone is what's in those archives, because it's the story. I have letters from the prisoners just documenting how I wrote Dead Man Walking, what the editor's notes were, how I shaped that story. If I hadn't had that good editor, you never would have heard of Dead, of Dead Man Walking. So, and all about how the film was made, everything about, but in the stories of the people, the struggle of the victims' families and all. But I chose DePaul. Suzanne Dumbleton was the dean of the School of New Learning there at DePaul, and I got to be friends with her. And uh, she was here in New Orleans one time around my birthday, actually, and we were having a little celebration. And she asked a casual question. And she said, by the way, uh, during in the hurricanes or whatever, uh, what do you do? Where are your archives or where are you keeping all your your things? That And we go, oh, in little cardboard boxes right up here, right over here in this room. And she said, I am. She was at DePaul, and she had a connection with DePaul. And so I went and I visited with DePaul and the Office of Mission and Values. Um, who is it? Um, who's in charge of it? The um, Duvick? No. It was Father Ed. So Father Ed takes me and, and we talk. And when I went through the library, before I went to the room where you had the special collections, they had all saints who had been involved in justice. And of course, Vincent, St. Vincent de Paul was just such a hero of mine. Uh, the Vincentians uh, were in New Orleans and working closely at a place in Hope House uh, where poor people are. And I, I knew them. And I, I could see that there was a bent at DePaul to connect justice with faith. And that was all I needed. And uh, so I said, okay, DePaul gets my archives. And it has been a great experience, Linda. I mean, you know, working with the archivist, with Morgan and uh, Jamie. And, um, and, so, and so I'm not physically at DePaul this year, but I've already had Zoom with two classes, uh, Fred Wellish's The Struggle for Social Justice for Human Rights. And uh, people read the book. Uh, then they reflect. Then I come and have the Zoom conference, and I'm amazed at how well these Zoom things work. I mean, it's like you're in the room together. The main thing that happens is the conversation. 
So the students, it's a student-driven conversation because they have the questions. And so then then I can respond. So And then we just did it also with uh, uh, the class on um, adaptation, students that are studying film. And, and so how did... It, how did the book get adapted into a film? What was it like to work with Tim Robbins? What kind of things went into it? Are you disappointed at anything the film did? What's the difference, in, you know, between the film and the book? I mean, just all these good questions of even how is the art of how you take a book and translate it into a film or into an opera or, or music out of it, the whole thing. And so it's been very dynamic. So I have a commitment to the ball. I have a special commitment to DePaul to work with DePaul. So I, I said I'll come w- once a year for a week and go to the different classes. I'm especially interested, too, in River of Fire, uh, which is the latest thing. We've just put the manuscript there of River of Fire. is the change in the Catholic Church and what Vatican II did to change the church. So I talk about my experiences of Vatican II being one of the things that helped wake me up. And it was... In a way, it's seismic because, you know, often before John, uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third brought the council together, we were kind of hunkered down in a kind of fortress church of we got to defend ourselves against heresy. And it was all about keeping the doctrines right. Jesus is both God and man. And then what Pope John the Twenty-Third said is that you got to look at the world in which we are and read the signs of the times. So it, it put the church directly in that relationship so that the gospel can be brought alive and live. And we see that in St. Vincent de Paul, of course, because look at what was happening all around him in France. People were starving to death. There had been religious wars. And he gets out there and he gets organized. He gets organized and he starts responding. And he's just such a great model, just a simple, humble man that just says, we got to do something. And Louise de Merillac working right at his side. And, uh, and so that's what it's about. It's about the church waking up, which means we wake up. And I was such a slow learner, Linda. I mean, I was 40 before I got the connection. That's what River's about about the connection that the gospel of Jesus is not just about being prayerful and pious and charitable to people around you. All that's good, but it's to see the wider community and the suffering. As Pope Francis has said, the church ought to be a field hospital out where the wounded and the suffering are. And now with this COVID-19 thing that we have upon us, it is epic. I mean, the UN is predicting that half Half of the of the people of the world are going to undergo hunger and starvation. It's affecting the food chains. It's just such a serious time. And right from Pope John the Twenty Third, read the signs of the times and what is the call of the gospel for individuals for us to do to respond to that. You are an incredible example of someone who lives to Paul's Vincentian values each and every day. When I think of someone who strongly believes in the dignity of every individual, you are one of the first people I think of. And for your efforts, we thank you, Sister Helen. I'm glad to be a part of it all. Glad to be awake. I'm Linda Blakely. Thank you for listening to this episode of DePaul Download, 
presented by DePaul's Division of University Marketing and Communications.